But let us open our Bibles together this morning to Luke's Gospel, chapter 12. Luke's Gospel, chapter 12. We left off last Sunday in verse 12, and so we begin this morning at verse 13. We're going to read down all the way through verse 34, and I encourage you to follow along there in your Bibles with me. Luke's Gospel, uh, chapter 12, uh, verse 13 through verse 34. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies. They grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat, and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. 
Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Well, after 15 years of systematic, expositional preaching through the Bible, I am not the least bit surprised that on the Sunday following Thanksgiving, as well as Black Friday, that in the Lord's providence, He has brought us to a text of Scripture in Luke's Gospel focused on the human struggle of greed. He says here in verse 15, that is Jesus, be on your guard against all covetousness, against all greed, greed. Greed is the insatiable desire for more. Whether that involves possessions, titles, or whatever it is that we want or desire. Greed is the insatiable desire for more. And it is a dangerous, dangerous sin. In fact, it's a violation of the Tenth Commandment. Exodus. Chapter 20 and verse 17, the 10th commandment from the law of Moses. It says, you shall not covet, don't be greedy towards your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. The reason why greed is so dangerous is because it can lead us to do things we never thought we'd do just to get what we want, including drifting away from the gospel itself. This is why Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 10, he said, the love of money, it's important to understand that phrase, the love of money, the desire for more money, greediness, greediness is a root for all kinds of evil. It is through this craving, this greediness, that some have even wandered away from the faith and subsequently pierced themselves through with many sorrows. All because they wanted more. All because they craved what they did not have. Did you find yourself this weekend, like many of us, flipping that switch so quickly? I mean, one moment we're 
sitting around the table with our family expressing words of gratitude. To literally just hours later finding ourselves consumed with going to great lengths to get what we don't have. Now, I'm not talking about deals. I'm talking about greed. I think most of us understand that there's a difference between savings and cravings. So I'm not preaching against Black Friday this morning. That's not the point of this. But we do flip that switch so quickly, don't we? Thankful for what we have. I gotta have more. I want that. I gotta get this. Now, I want you to listen to me very carefully. This sermon is not intended to give anyone a vague sense of guilt that causes you not to go out and replace that broken dishwasher that your wife has been begging you to replace for months. That's not what this is about. It's my desire that we take these words of Jesus and let them invade our hearts to show us truly not only where and how our greed is most often revealed, but to help guard against it. Why is it that we need to guard against greed? Because it is our worship and our love and our desires that are to be fixed first and foremost on Christ. Not things, not stuff, not more, not something different, but Christ. Christ. And greed will diminish that worship that loyalty, that love quicker than just about anything else. Well, in verse 13 of our text, Jesus is teaching and he's interrupted by a man who calls out to him. He calls out to him out of the crowd and frankly out of the blue. And he calls out to him about a family issue that was totally unrelated to anything that Jesus had been saying. Now, Jesus was the perfect teacher in both essence and practice. And unlike myself, he never got flustered by stuff like this. But any of us who are teachers understand that these moments when you're pouring your heart out, teaching your material, and then all of a sudden someone makes a comment or someone says something that is completely unrelated to anything that you've just been sharing. And if you're like me, those of you who are in that type of environment, whether it's in a ministry environment or a classroom environment, you leave yourself wondering, what in the world am I doing? Is anyone even listening to what I'm saying? Well, Jesus is teaching here about fearing God, as we looked at last Sunday. He's teaching about persecution and hypocrisy. And then all of a sudden, a voice cries out and says, teacher, teacher. Will you tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me? Well, what we have here is a family dispute. And this man wants Jesus to settle it. Now, let me say this. Jesus wants us to come to him. 
about anything. He wants us to come to him, and we should come to him, especially for wisdom and help. The Bible tells us that if we lack wisdom, we can come to God. And you know what? He promises to give us wisdom, not in minor amounts, but in abundant amounts. God wants you to come to him. Whatever it is in your life that you need wisdom about today, maybe it's a family dispute. Come to Jesus. He wants you to come to him, and he will give you wisdom. But the manner of this man's approach to Jesus shows us that he's not so much interested in a solution to their family disagreement. What he's really interested in is Jesus signing off on what he wants, which is a hefty portion of the inheritance. In fact, if you look at it there in verse 13, he doesn't even ask Jesus. Did you notice that? He tells Jesus to tell his brother to do what he wanted him to do and what he thought he should do. Jesus' response to the man makes it obvious that his request was filled with greed. This man was consumed with getting what he wanted. So Jesus, as he often did, takes this as a teaching moment to turn and warn his followers about the danger of greed and how to guard against it in our lives, the danger that he is pointing out in this man's life by his mere request, a man who is so consumed with wanting more, wanting something different, wanting what he doesn't have. It's such a major issue. He now turns to them. He turns to them, verse 15, who? His followers, and he says, What you've just heard, I want to guard you against. I don't want this to be named among you. And so that's why he says in verse 15, look at it there in your Bibles. He said to them, not the man, but to his followers, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, greed. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. From this passage and Jesus' continued comments, I want you to look at three antidotes to greed this morning. Three antidotes. Three antidotes about greed. Here's the first one. Contentment. Contentment. Again, verse 15, Jesus said, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Why is it That we evaluate our happiness and success and even our identity by what we do or do not possess. Jesus makes it clear here. An abundance of stuff or an absence of stuff neither promotes nor diminishes what your life is all about. Having more doesn't define you. Having less doesn't define you. Who you are is not dictated by what you own in terms of things or titles. We're not created for things. And we're not to live for things. Instead, we are called by Jesus to a life of contentment. Specifically, Learning to be content in the sovereign plan of God. 
for our lives. Again, I refer back to Paul and his lessons to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6 when he said, we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. Sounds very familiar to what my parents had said to me on several occasions. I brought you into the world, I can take you out of the world, all right? Similar, not the same. Similar, but not the same. What he's saying here is, we didn't bring anything into the world. We came into the world naked, and when we leave the world, we're going to leave naked. So, if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Now think about that. If we have food and if we have clothing, we'll be content with that. Now, I think I'm prepared to say, at least I know this is true of me, that most of us are very far removed from that sentiment. We're not content with just food and clothing. No, no, no. We have to have a special type of food. We, we have to have a certain brand of clothes. Let's just be honest. This is where all of us struggle. Paul's saying, you didn't come in with anything. You can't leave with anything. We need to be content with just food and clothes. Now, I want you to understand what the essence of contentment is. Contentment is satisfaction in and submission to what God has given me. That's contentment. Contentment is being satisfied in what God has given me. It is being submitted to what God has given me. It's a conviction. That is contentment. It's a conviction, a choice that we make a deliberate mindset that my heavenly Father knows what's best for me. And he knows what's best for me right here, right now. Let me ask you another question. If you were in charge of your life, that is, if you were sovereign over your life and not God... Would you be at this very moment where God has you? I mean, really do some reflection. God is sovereign. He has brought every one of us to the place that we are out of his divine will. So if we reverse roles and he's no longer sovereign and you're sovereign, would you be right now where God has placed you, where he has put you? Your house, your job. I think our answer reveals whether or not we are truly content with God's sovereign plans for us. You see, we all have an assigned seat that we have to sit in. You get, you, you get on that airplane and you realize that you're not sitting up there where the larger seats are. 
You don't get the nice free drinks that they're bringing out. And I mean, back here we have crusty pretzels. Up there they have Biscoff cookies. So you have to walk through all those people in the front and you see them with their fancy headphones and laptops and they're sipping on their drinks. And I mean, life, they're laughing, they're carrying on, not a care in the world. And then you get back there and you think, okay, these seats aren't bad. Maybe I get one of these. And those are the ones you have to pay extra room for. But no, your, your seat is 56B. And so you have to pass through the larger room. And by the time you get there, okay, maybe I'm in a window seat or an aisle seat. That's not bad. No, 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 no. You've been aside a middle seat. And guess what? Someone five times your size is sitting by the window. And a child who's three years old is sitting in the aisle. And you're in the middle. It doesn't matter how much you want to move up. It doesn't matter how much you desire to be where the bigger, nicer amenity seats are. You have an assigned seat. That's where you have to sit. And so it is in the sovereign will of God. Every one of our lives right now in this moment have been given an assigned seat. And that's where we have to sit. And that's what learning to be content is. I will be satisfied with the seat God has given me. I will submit to the seat that God has given to me. Sinclair Ferguson said it like this. True contentment means embracing the Lord's will in every aspect of his providence simply because it's the Lord's will. Simply because it's the Lord's will. And I'll be the first to admit that I like the bigger seats. I love the Biscoff cookies. I'll be the first to admit to you that this is something we have to learn. And it is oftentimes that the Lord is the one who has to teach it to us. And I know in my life, it's had to come through painful experiences. Learning contentment. You see, even in my own life, there's been times where I have not been very satisfied with where God has put me. Not submitted to what God's plans are for me. And through painful experiences, he's had to help me learn how to be content. But Paul said in Philippians chapter 4, I have learned. I have learned in whatsoever state I'm in, whatever my situation, I have learned to be content. So I want you to think about it like this, and then we're going to move on because... I know you're content to stay here for a while on this point, but I also see your discontent and your desire for me to move ahead a little further. But think about it like this. Contentment is not something we do. It's something we learn. Contentment is not something we do. It's something we learn. And to guard our lives against greed, we must ask Jesus to teach us 
contentment. And herein lies the big question of application. Are you willing this morning to ask Jesus? Are you willing to ask Jesus to teach you contentment? I mean, before you even leave this place today, are you willing to say in a heartfelt, sincere prayer, Lord, teach me, yes, now, here, in this season, teach me what it means to be content in you. Well, how do we guard against greed? Contentment. Because life does not consist in what we own. Secondly, generosity. The first antidote is contentment. The second antidote to greed is generosity. Generosity. Now, this covers a larger uh, section of our text, verses 16 through 21. And what Jesus does now is share a parable. A farmer essentially had become successful and rich, which, by the way, Jesus is not condemning. He's not condemning the man's success or his riches. Do not misunderstand his teaching on commitment to suggest that it's wrong to have riches or that it's wrong to have possessions. That mentality is incompatible with Scripture. And one of the first proofs of that is seen in God's blessing on many of his servants, all right? It's not wrong to have riches. It's not wrong to be blessed. It's not wrong to earn a good living and to do things that you enjoy with it. So, so, so let's, let's, let's not take that course of action either because that is an extreme, incompatible, erroneous view of Scripture. Now let me, just, let me just say as a side note here that I think that within itself, that thought process, is another way that greed invokes other sins. Other sins like Jealousy, for example. Many of us resent riches and success, especially when it's not our riches or success. And where does that start? Where does that jealousy come from? Greed. Greed. We want our neighbor's house. We want our friend's car. Greed, and so we get jealous. Why, why are they so successful? Why do they get to do those things? Why do they have these opportunities? Now that's why greed is the root of all kinds of evil. It, it leads to so many different sins. But let's, let's get back to the parable. The man's rich, he's success, God has blessed him. But the problem here with the rich man was that he stored up his riches for himself. You see, the man had been given an opportunity, an opportunity to use what God had blessed him with to serve the Lord, to serve his kingdom, to help others in return. But instead, he decided to take what he was earning and use it, verse 19, to relax, eat, drink, and be merry. In other words, this man is saying, look at what I have. Look at how I've been blessed. I mean, I've got plenty of money. I mean, I got so much money, I can just tear down buildings that I own and build bigger ones just to store all of my money. He doesn't think twice about that. So, so he looks back at everything that he has, all that he's earned, his success. He says, look, I've got plenty of money, and I'm going to use it all to have a long, easy, and luxurious 
life. But in the very next verse, verse 20, Jesus calls the man a fool. And he calls the man a fool because the man thinks he's going to take what he has and have a long, easy, and luxurious life. But what the man doesn't know is what God knows. That night, he's going to die. Fool, he calls him. And when he dies, no preparations have been made for his riches to be used in the kingdom of God. No preparations through his life and no preparations through his death. Now, I don't intend to park here. But I do think there's something to be said about our investments and our estates and our future disbursement of possessions in regard to the kingdom of God. Because this is all tied into the kingdom of God. Listen, we've been blessed as a church to be able to do some really nice things. Because people wield their investments and portions of their estates and, and, and things of that nature to the work of the kingdom of God. Listen, there's some things we would have never been able to accomplish. We are closer than ever before on getting at least documents together for a new phase of building because people have done this sort of thing to our ministry. Thanks be to God for that. I think there's something to be said here about thinking about what you're going to leave behind and how you're going to leave it behind. But this man had done none of that. He had done nothing in his life to serve the kingdom. And now after he's dead, nothing that he owns is going to serve the kingdom of God. So Jesus is rebuking him. Not for what he owned. Please don't misunderstand this. He's not rebuking him for what he owned. He's rebuking him for using what he owned all for himself. Verse 21 he laid up, that is, he stockpiled treasure for himself, but he was not rich. He was not generous toward God. In other words, greed governed him while generosity eluded him. So we come back to the question, how do we guard against greed? Well, by being generous. By being generous in our giving to the kingdom of God. John Wesley once said, earn as much as you can. Save as much as you can and give as much as you can. And we do that by recognizing the opportunities that we have to bless others, the opportunities we have to give back generously to the kingdom of God, to the work of his gospel. I mean, look at the poor widow in Mark chapter 12 who that, that day gave one-eighth of a cent in the offering plate. I often think about that parable because of our offering deposit boxes. Back in that day in the temple, they would have these metal-like boxes that when you, when you put the coins in, they would clank. So, so the Pharisees, the rich people, they wanted everybody to know what they were giving and how they were giving. So they would wait until a crowd of people were around. And then they would go and they would not get dollar bills. They would get coins. And then they would throw it into the box and clank, 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 clank. And everybody looks in amazement. Wow, they sure do give a lot. But what this widow gave didn't even clank. That's how small it was. One-eighth of a cent she put into the offering plate. 
But then Jesus praised her giving as being more generous than what anyone combined had given that day. That doesn't make sense to us. How could she be more generous when she gave less than anyone else? Because God measures giving not by what we put into the offering plate. He measures giving by what we keep out for ourselves. Here's the issue. The poor widow, Jesus said, gave everything. She gave everything that she had. She kept nothing out for herself. She was generous. I wonder how much of even my own giving and your giving is sometimes motivated by greed. We're more concerned about what we're keeping than we are what we're actually giving. Proverbs 21, 26 parallels the greedy person with the generous person. It says in verse 26 of Proverbs 21, all day long the greedy man craves and craves. He craves and craves. I mean, he's sitting there thinking about what he wants. He sees the commercial, oh man, I'd like to have that. And by the way, don't, don't, don't get deceived by the holiday commercialism. I don't know how many of us actually are going to take our wives out to the driveway on Christmas morning with a Lexus and a red bow on top of it. I, I did take my wife out for Thanksgiving last year and bought her a minivan. We, 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 we buy into these things. We get deceived by the commercialization. We crave, we crave, we crave. But then he says, but the, but the generous man gives and he doesn't hold back. What a parallel. What a striking contrast. The greedy man craves, craves, craves. I want, I want, I want more, more, more. I'm not happy with this. I got to have something different. And the generous man, I mean, he just keeps giving and he keeps giving and he keeps giving. I mean, he don't even know what really what's in the account. He just, he's not holding back. He's just giving, giving, giving. I wonder which best describes you and me this morning. Are we the craver or the giver? Are we the taker or the tither? Are we the greedy one or the generous one? You see, the real issue of the rich man was the priority of his heart. He failed to realize that everything he had first belonged to God. You see, when it comes to money and possessions, the Bible is clear. Steward your money wisely, enjoy it humbly, and give it generously. Because we were made for only one person and one place. Jesus is the person, heaven is the place. So our treasures are not for ourselves and they are not for our kingdom. They are for Jesus and his kingdom. And if we want to rid this greed out of our hearts, which is responsible for all the other sins that may be troubling you this morning, we have got to ask Jesus to teach us contentment. And we have got to start giving instead of holding back. Generosity. All right, let me give you the third one. So the first antidote is contentment. The second is generosity. The third is trust. The third is trust. That brings us to verse 22, verse 22 all the way down through the rest of our text, verse 34. And, and he begins verse 22 by telling his disciples not to be anxious, not to be anxious, worried. Now, I, I want to say something, and I want to say it briefly because this is not the time to expound in all of this 
but I think it's important for that we understand it as a church family. Not all anxiety is the same. And not all anxiety is sinful. Not all anxiety is the same. And not all anxiety is sinful. For example, some anxiety is a God-given emotional response that's for our benefit. It's, it's an inward fear that says, run when you encounter that copperhead in the backyard. You're out on a camping trip, and you're in your tent all by yourself, but you hear the bear messing around. It's, it's that inner fear, that inner anxiety that says, don't do anything stupid. Okay? That's a God-given emotional response that exists to help protect your life. Some anxiety is also a disordered physiological response. We call this clinical anxiety. It's like any other sickness, like cancer, anything else, heart disease. It attacks our sick bodies, and it does so as a result of the fall. But it doesn't attack us as a result always of personal sin. There's a difference. We experience sickness and disease and difficulty because our great-great-great-grandparents, Adam and Eve, defied God. And now sin and sickness is coming to the world. So these type of things, these physiological struggles, these clinical anxieties, they come about in our lives because of the fall, yes, but not always because of personal failure. And like lightning, these clinical anxieties, they can come out of nowhere without any explanation and just bring us down. I know. I deal with it. But then we have a third type of anxiety. And that is a sinful response to God's providential care. We call this a lack of trust in God. And it is that type of anxiety that Jesus is referring to in verse 22 and throughout the text when he says, don't be anxious. Don't be worried. It is an anxiety, a fear, a worry that lacks trust in God's sovereign, providential, and personal care over our lives. So to guard against greed by trusting God, he says, number one, you need to trust that there is more to life than these monetary things. There's more to life than these monetary things. Verse 22, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more. It is more than food and the body more than clothing. Well, what is life about then? Life is about God's kingdom. It's about God's glory. It's about God's purposes. It's not about where we eat, how we live, and what brand we wear. That's what he's saying. So don't worry about these things. They're non-essential. They're temporary. Live instead for what is essential, what is eternal, and that is the kingdom and purposes of God. And there's only one way to do that. You've got to trust God. You've got to trust God that your life, your life is more important than the titles you have and the things you own. And then he says, trust, trust that God knows exactly what we need. Trust that God knows exactly what we need. Verse 28, if God clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? 
Do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. My Father knows that I need them. My Father knows that I need them. I want everybody to say that out loud. Ready? My Father knows that I need them. Say it again. Y'all know everybody's saying it. My Father knows that I need them. He does. He knows. He knows exactly what your needs are. He knows. And he calls us to consider the ravens, the lilies, the grass. He's saying to us, you're more valuable to God than any one of these. And yet he faithfully, lovingly takes care of them. So be confident that God's going to take care of you. He knows what you need. He knows what you can handle. Trust God. And then when you come to verse 31, he reminds us to trust that God's kingdom is more important than mine. Verse 31, instead, instead of worrying and being anxious, seek his kingdom. And these things will be added to you. In other words, put him first. Him, that is. Christ. Put him first, not things. Seek his purposes, not yours. Let's be generous in building his kingdom, not ours. How do we do that? Trust God. Trust him that his kingdom is more important than ours. It's a, we are often taught in the Bible that the Christian life is a life of faith, and that involves every aspect of it, including including the things we think we need, including the lives that we want to build. It all belongs to God. And by faith, we're trusting him that he has me exactly where he wants me. And if he wants anything differently, he will do that. And here's how he closes, and I'm done. Verse 31, or excuse me, 30, 32. And I love this. It's, it's, it's almost... It's almost as if Jesus is just taking a deep breath for a moment. And he says, look at it. Fear not, little flock. Little flock. That's endearing. That's not condemning. That's endearing. It's gentle. I love this about the Savior. He is gentle with us, even in our anxieties, even in our worries. Even right now, this morning, as you sit here, maybe wondering how you're even going to provide Christmas for your family. Jesus comes to us and says, I know you're worried. I like this. I like this, Matt. I can just sit back here and recline on this. This is real nice. He says, I know you're worried, but don't fear, little flock. Don't fear, little flock. It is your father's, look at this, it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That is, God delights in giving to his children. He delights in it. And that's proven by his best gift, which is the gospel of the kingdom through his son, Jesus. It's the best gift we're ever given. So don't worry, little flock. I love giving to my children. And if I gave you my son, if I gave you the knowledge of the gospel, if I've invited you into the kingdom, I'm going to take care of every other dimension of your life. I'm going to do it. 
Don't fear. Instead, be content and generous. Verse 33, he's summarizing everything he just said. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means whatever the Holy Spirit's telling you to do. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourself with money bags that don't grow old. In other words, don't, don't be a one-time tipper to the kingdom of God. No, have money, money bags that just keep on giving to the kingdom of God, to the people who are in need. Be generous with it. Because that's a treasure in the heavens that do not fail, does not fail. No thief can steal it, no moth can destroy it. And by the way, verse 34, this is where we end. Where your treasure is, there's your heart. Where your money is, where your money is, there's your heart. There's your loyalty. There's your worship. There's your life. Look at where your money is. Look at where your money is. If we, if we were to open the account this morning, for all of us to see it on the screen, what would what would it say? Well, well some of you would think that I worship Chick-fil-A. That's, that's, that's what it would say. But no, beyond that, beyond that, am I building my kingdom? Does my portfolio only say my kingdom, my kingdom, my kingdom? Or does it say God's kingdom? So don't be greedy. Be content. And trust God that he's going to take care of you. Now, Christ is at the center of it all, isn't he? I mean, he is. Don't miss that. It is in Christ we find contentment. So, so, so it's not going home and saying, you know what, I'm, I'm going to be content with the clunker that I have, that I have to pray every morning before I crank it just to hope that it starts up. That, that, if, if that's the application, you've missed Jesus. The application is... I'm content in Christ. And I know Christ is going to make this thing work because I'm content in him. But if he doesn't make it work, he's going to provide something else for me that will work. Because my contentment is not in the clunker and it's not in the Lamborghini. My contentment is in Christ. That's the point. It's in Christ we find contentment. It's in Christ we learn to be generous. We learn to be generous. We're, we're giving back to the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God has been given with no strings attached to us. So it's in Christ we love to do that. It's in Christ we long to do that. It's in Christ we learn that. And it's in Christ that we trust him to provide our needs. Life is not about money. That's the point of everything. You said, Pastor, you could have said that a long time ago and we could have went home. But listen to me. It's not about money. It's not about position, possessions. It's about Christ, and it's about his gospel. And it's how we view, use, and pursue money that reveals what our life is about. It's how we view, use, and pursue money that identifies who our master really is. 
Because Jesus said, Matthew 6, 24, you cannot serve God and money. It's impossible. And that brings us to a fork in the road, doesn't it? Who will we serve? Who will we love? Who will we worship? Well, let me remind you, he gave the entire kingdom for you. He gave everything, his own life to you. Money very infrequently brings any satisfaction. In fact, it probably brings a lot more stress and heartache than it does anything. But Jesus never brings that. Even in our most difficult and challenging days, he is there as a constant abiding peace and comfort to get us through. And I'm just telling you, Christ is more valuable than money. Worship him. Choose him. Live for him. And go home and pull up your bank account and say, God, help me to view everything here. Pull up into the driveway and say, Lord, help me to view everything here. Even the reindeer in the front yard that half the lights are missing on. And get in that vehicle when you leave and say, Lord, help me to drive this car in view, in view of the fact. That this is all for you. Be content. Be generous. Trust God. And do it in the power of Jesus. Let's stand together for prayer this morning.